Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the fact that even though we have so much against us, so much opposition, so many setbacks, nevertheless, you are always faithful. And Lord, just when it seems that your people are without hope, without options, you always come through because you are the faithful God. We thank you that you have provided the means in which your people can still stay connected, though not ideal and yet temporary, with the hope that one day we will be able to resume what we have um, not been able to have for so long. Lord, may that absence cause us to cherish and to be more grateful of the things that you have blessed us with in the past so that in the future we will never take it for granted. But now, Lord, as we are here in this present moment, we pray that you will bless us and be among us, that you will now bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, one of the most unexpected discoveries that have really confused and perplexed anthropologists and archaeologists was the discovery of musical instruments in some of the most ancient cultures that have been unearthed and discovered. And the reason for their confusion is because, as it was believed, the top priority for all of these ancient cultures was merely to survive. The top priority. I mean, think about it. People who lived back then didn't have the benefits that we take for granted, things like refrigeration, running water, reliable shelter. And so it came as somewhat as a shock to where as these scientists unearthed things like flint knives and arrowheads, that they also discovered flutes and stringed instruments. Turns out music was as much of a priority for people as it was hunting for food or not be hunted as food. And indeed, scientists are telling us now that making music is one of the fundamental characteristics of what makes us human. Case in point, a few years ago, an anthropologist of, 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 at the University of Tübingen by the name of Nick Conrad once said these words. He says this, quote, clap your hands, tap your foot, dance, sing, whistle. There's endless music you can make just with your body, end quote. In other words, to be a human being is to be a musician. And of course, the Bible would agree with such a sentiment, but it would tweak that a little bit to where it would say the following. To be a human being is to be a person who praises. To be a human being is to be a person who praises. And the reason for that alteration is because as far as the Bible is concerned, the primary purpose of music is not entertainment. It's not setting the mood, and it certainly is not to be rich and famous. No, the Bible tells us that the primary purpose of music is to evoke worship. Again, the primary purpose of music is to evoke worship. And when I say worship, I don't mean the worship of a music idol, but rather the worship of the majestic I am, the God of Scripture. And so, as we continue our sermon series on the way we worship, we're going to consider the musical component of worship, what is often known as praise. Praise. And to do so, we're going to take a look at this passage in Psalm chapter 33. And as we consider what this text is teaching us, our God is not only going to reveal to us his mind, but also his very heart as to why he created us to be such musical creatures that would express our musicality in the form of praise. 
So, with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you in today's sermon. First, we're going to talk about the memory of praise. Then we're going to talk about the righteousness of praise. And then we're going to end it with the person of praise. The memory of praise, the righteousness of praise, and then we're going to end it with the person of praise. Okay, so let's begin with the first point, the memory of praise. In the very opening verse of our passage, you come across a statement that goes like this. Shout for joy in the Lord. Shout for joy in the Lord. Now, that is a statement that you see often throughout the Bible, especially this book that we're looking at, the book of Psalms. And because it's such a frequent statement that you see, because it is so common, you can easily forget that this is actually a command. God is commanding his people to sing to him. Okay? Now, unless you're one of those poor souls who had parents that forced you to sing in front of their guests, like, oh, sing to our guest mommy's favorite hymn. Unless you're one of those people, this idea of God commanding his people to sing just seems weird. I mean, yeah, it makes sense for God to command us to, to not steal, God commanding us to not murder, God commanding us to, to not to lie to one another, but this idea of God commanding us to sing, what's that about? Well, let me see if I can explain. Have you ever had that experience where you hear a song, even if it's a song that you hate, a song that you loathe, but it just sticks to your brain. You can't get it out of your mind. As soon as you hear the opening bars, you're like, oh no, and that song is just stuck in your head for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. And not only is the song itself and the melody itself stuck in your head, but even the situation or the circumstances in which you heard that song gets forever stuck in your head as well. Let me give you an example. Every time I hear that song by Twyla Paris, How Beautiful, I always go back to the greatest day of my life, which was the day I married my wife, Sarah, because that was the song she walked down the aisle to marry yours truly. And as a result, this cheesy 90s Christian pop song transforms into one of the most significant and important songs to the soundtrack of my life. You see, music has the capability of being very sticky. There is this unforgettable characteristic when it comes to melody and song. And guess what? That also applies to the songs that we sing to our God. And when you understand that, then you figure out why God commands his people to sing to him because he wants them to remember something. Specifically, he's commanding them to remember something about him. But of course, that begs the question, what exactly does God want us to remember about him? Read again with me verses 6 and 7 of our passage where we read the following. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Okay, come on back. Here the psalmist is describing the various realms of the universe that display God's power and authority because it also displays mankind's weakness and ineptitude. You see, even though we've advanced so much in our technology and in our science to where man is able to now trek across and be present in areas that were hostile in the past, that's not true of all of the universe. There are still some parts of the universe like the starry hosts, the heavens, the depths of the sea that mankind can never access or ever tame. But that is not true of our God. Our God is so great. Our God is so awesome. He is so powerful that he has full access and he has full power to tame everything by his authority that we are never going to be able to see, never be able to gonna touch. And what's so crazy about it, he's able to do all of this simply by his word, by the simple breath that emanates from his mouth. And it's these attributes of God's greatness, God's awesomeness, God's uniqueness 
that he wants us to sing to him about. Now, if you're watching or if you're here investigating Christianity, you might be thinking to yourself that we Christians worship a narcissistic God, right? You might be thinking, uh, pastor, let me get this straight. Not only are you telling me that your God commands your people to sing to him, but he wants you to sing about how great and awesome he is, huh? Yes, for two reasons, both of which have nothing to do with him being full of himself. The first reason you read about in verse eight. Let's read it again, verse eight, where it says this. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Here, the psalmist tells us the benefit that we get to experience when we sing praises to him. We get to fear him. Now, again, you're thinking to yourself, come again? How can fearing somebody or someone be a benefit? How how can you say fear is a good thing? But don't misunderstand. The fear that he's referring to is not terrifying fear, like when you're watching a horror movie by yourself late at night or when you're walking by yourself at a late hour in the city, you know. He's actually talking about another kind of fear, and that's reverential fear. Reverential fear. And what is reverential fear? It's the fear that you experience when you experience transcendence. Reverential fear is what you experience when you encounter something that is transcendent and makes you feel transcendence. Maybe you know or maybe you don't, but every human being, including all of you here and all of you watching, every human being longs to experience transcendence. And the reason why I know this is because we get all of us miserable when we don't experience transcendence, also known as boredom. Aren't we all miserable when we're bored? Aren't we just frustrated, right? When we are just bored, when we have a situation where all of the joy, all of the passion, all the sense of excitement about life just gets sucked out of us like a leech, right? We all have experienced the misery of the dreariness, the dullness, the mundaneness, the lifelessness that life can sometimes put upon us to where we almost feel like a leaf plucked off a tree after a few days dries out, desiccates and just falls to brittle, evaporating never to be seen again. And because we cannot stand that condition, what do we do? We do all that we can to overcome this sense of being cut off and try to be reconnected to something that makes us feel alive again. Whether it's going on a crazy shopping spree, whether it's, I don't know, going on exotic vacations to traveling across the world or maybe popping a pill in your mouth or maybe having illicit intimacy encounters with random strangers that you just happen to find attractive. But you see, the Bible tells us that the only way we can experience true transcendence is when we are connected to God by remembering how great and how awesome he is. It is only when we are reminded that God is awesome and great, that we get renewed, we get revitalized, we get rejuvenated to where life feels like life again. This is why Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, remain in me, and you will have life to the full. So that's the first reason why God commands us to sing to him, so that we could be benefited of experiencing life the way we know it should be, but so often is not because of our boredom. The second reason why God commands us to sing to him is shown to us in verses 13 to 15 of our passage. Read it again with me. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds. 
here's something you need to understand. God commands us to sing to him because he doesn't want us to forget that even though he is so marvelous, even though he's so majestic, even though he's so grand, even though he's so great, nevertheless, he has a clear vested interest in you to where he is nearby and he is carefully watching you. You see that one word in verse 15, the word observe? That word observe carries this idea of a first-time father holding his child just minutes after he was born, and he looks and scrutinizes with tender love every little detail, every little nuance, every little minutia of this child that causes him to be filled with such obsessive, astounding love. That's the kind of love that God has for us. And that's what he wants us to remember every time we sing to him. He wants us to know that he's paying attention. He wants to know that he is near. He wants to know that he cares. And that's just astounding because think about it. Of all the great marvels of the universe that God could be preoccupied with, he chooses to gaze his loving heart upon ourselves. Now, for those of you Christians who might think, well, pastor, that's true for that kind of Christian or that kind of person, but not me, I would simply say, you're wrong. You're wrong. Why? Because of what it says in verse 3. It says, sing to him a new song. Sing to him a new song. Why would God call a specific generation to sing a new song? I mean, there are classic oldies, right? There are the ones that never get old, the songs that never die out. Why can't we just sing those songs that have been awesome in the past? Why does God demand that we sing new songs? Because he's trying to convey this idea that with, among God's people, no one and no generation can replace another. God cares for every unique individual and every unique generation it makes up to where whatever previous generation has experienced of God cannot replace, cannot substitute another because God has concern and care for every single one of us, okay? So there you have it. The two reasons why God commands that we sing to him so that we would know how great and awesome he is to know that he is only the source of life, but secondly, that as a source of life, he looks at us with great care and concern. Now, with all that established, we have to be aware of a potential danger that is attached sometimes when God's people are singing praises to him. And it's a danger that if you're not aware of, could cause you to fall into deep self-deception. What do I mean? Well, to explain, let me go to my next point, the righteousness of praise. I once heard a story of a missionary in Africa where one day she was at the clinic And as she was doing her work, she overheard a local Zulu woman singing a common folk song that she never heard before. And here's the thing. The music was so hauntingly beautiful that the missionary just started weeping uncontrollably, right? To the point where she started thinking, wow, this is the most intimate time I felt with God than I had in such a long time. And so because of that experience, she asked her translator, can you please translate what that woman was singing? I really need to know. Her translator looked at her like she was out of her mind. And when she pressed her to translate, the translator just shrugged her head and just said, she's singing, if you boil the water, you won't get diarrhea. 
That's a funny story, but it makes a serious point. It points out that music has an inherent characteristic of moving us emotionally, which could be a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing. Let me give you an example of it being bad. In the 1980s, there was a pandemic going on in our culture where so many teenagers were killing themselves. I mean, mass suicide across the country. In fact, it got so bad that the U.S. government got involved by putting together a task force to figure out why were these teenagers killing themselves? You know what they discovered the culprit was? Heavy metal music. Heavy metal music. The dark lyrics, the sinister melody, just really moved these young minds in such a way that it actually, I don't even know if this is the right word, inspired them to kill themselves. And that's a tragic story. But in my estimation, the story of the missionary is just as tragic, if not more tragic. Because here is the situation of a person who thinks that they're getting close to God, who thinks they're communing with God, who thinks they're connecting to God, when in fact all they were experiencing was just simple, shallow emotionalism. That sometimes happens. It's comparable to a person speaking to you in French and thinking it's some romantic thing when they could just simply be giving you their laundry list or their grocery list, right? Words and music can be articulated in such a way that sounds so profound, so meaningful, so substantive, when in reality, it's just shallow, okay? You see, in order for praise, according to Scripture, to be genuine, in order for praise to be true and meaningful, the Bible says the person offering the praise has to meet a certain condition, In order for a person to offer true, meaningful praise that is really able to do the things that it's supposed to do, get you connected to God, close to God, and commune with God, the person offering the praise has to first be in a certain condition, which we read about in verses 1 and 2. Read it with me again. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Now, the thing I want to draw your attention to is that word righteous and the other word upright. That's very important set of words because it tells us the condition that the praiser needs to be if they really want to offer true and genuine praise. Only a person who is truly righteous, only a person who is genuinely upright can offer true and genuine praise to God. Let me say that again. Only a person who is truly righteous, only a person who is genuinely upright can offer true and genuine worship to God through praise. And this is something that we really need to grasp because so often, so many Christians or people who think they are Christians do not grasp this. Let me give you an example. I've been in ministry long enough where I have known people who come to church service after a night of craziness, a night of debauchery, a night of just hedonism, right? That would make even demons blush, that would come to service, they would sing a few songs, be moved to the point of crying tears, And from that experience, they would think, me and God, we're good. He likes me, I like him, I'm on fire for God. And then they wonder why Monday through Saturday, they still fall into the same temptations. Why they still give in to the same kinds of sins. Why the vices that struggled with them in the past are still holding on to them. They don't understand what praise does and does not do because they don't understand the underlying problem because it hasn't been addressed. And that's the underlying problem of unrighteousness. Hear me when I say this. Praising God does not make you righteous. Making melodies in your heart does not make you right with God. 
okay? It works the other way. In order for your praises to do what it's designed to do, get you close to God, connect you to God, commune with your God, you must first be righteous, which therefore means if you want to properly praise God, you got to look outside of yourself. You cannot look within, right? Look again at what it says in verses 16 to 17. Let me read it to you. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Now, you may think that the psalmist completely changed the topic, that he went from talking about praise to now shifting his subject on military tactics or something, but no. He's simply using the characters of a king and his army, a warrior and his strength, and a soldier with the war horse to convey the incapability of us to look to ourselves to be able to use praise correctly. Let me explain. Just like a king cannot trust in his army, so also a person cannot trust in his singing capabilities to make him right with God. Just as a warrior cannot trust his own strength, so a person cannot trust his own emotions to get him close to God. Just as a person cannot rely on a war horse in battle, so also a person cannot trust in his own righteousness to give him a good standing with God. We cannot offer genuine, heartfelt praise that will cause us to get connected, close, or commune with our God unless we first have righteousness. But because we don't have righteousness in us, we need to look outside of us, which means the only way we could get righteous if it's given to us by a person who actually possesses righteousness. So the question is, how exactly do we encounter this person so that we can receive the righteousness that we need to offer true and genuine praise? The answer leads me to my final point, the person of praise. While Jesus was dying on the cross, the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all tell us that as Jesus was dying on the cross, crucified, a Roman soldier, a centurion, was standing at the foot of the cross watching Jesus die. And in Luke's account, it tells us that when he noticed Jesus breathing his last breath, the soldier responded with giving praises to God. Okay? He started praising God right there at the foot of the cross. Now, there's a couple things that I find kind of odd about that. First is how it seems to give off an inappropriate, odd, unnatural response given the moment. Here is a guy who just died. And then another person who watched that person die starts praising God. It just seems like, like something that is unfitting for this situation. And not only is it unfitting because of the situation, but it also seems unfitting because of the person who's offering the praise. Remember, this is a Roman soldier, a centurion. He is a member of his king, Caesar's army. He is a warrior with great strength. He is a person who rides a war horse into battle. In other words, this centurion embodies the character of, of the persons that Psalm 33 refers to as those incapable of offering praises to God. And yet here is the centurion, this person who just seems unnatural, unfitting, inappropriate in offering praises that could be genuine and true, and yet he does. Why? Well, I think it's to kind of challenge many of us. You know, I think for many of us in the church, we think that we're not the types who can genuinely praise God because for whatever reason, like, oh, I'm not a singer. I don't like to sing. My personality is the kind where, you know, that's just not my style. 
You know, it's just awkward. It feels unnatural. It feels unfitting for me to come to a church service and just singing. It just seems so out of tune with who I am. And yet the fact that we have a centurion able to offer praise that is acceptable to God tells us that that mindset that you have is absolutely wrong. Because think about it. Here is a centurion who by his very nature would seem to be someone who shouldn't be able to offer praises, and yet he does. Why? It's because he realized something at the moment at Jesus' death on the cross. And it's something that you need to realize too. And that is God was willing to do something, and he did do something to where if you know it, you will respond with genuine heartfelt praise. Let me explain. See, regardless if you think your praise is important to you, it is very important to God, okay? Because why else would he have given up his majestic throne in heaven where he was surrounded, literally, by angelic voices singing such celestial choruses that no human voice, no human choir could ever match? And yet the gospel tells us that's exactly what he did. God left his celestial throne that was resounding with such celestial choruses to come into this world as a man, Jesus Christ. And as he did, he lived the perfect righteous life and he suffered the full penalty, the full punishment for your sins, for my sins, for all of our unrighteousness to where if you put your faith in him as your king, as your Lord, as your master, all of that righteousness that he accrued from living that perfect moral spiritual life gets credited to you to where now legally, that righteousness is as much yours as it is Jesus's. To where now, if you offer praises to God, God is not going to see it as fake. He's not going to see it as inauthentic. He's not going to see it as you posing something that you're not. He's going to see it the way he sees Jesus praising him. As true, heartfelt, genuine, and acceptable. And when you realize all this, all this excuse me, you then realize why God says that our praises are important to him because it gives him the opportunity to enjoy our love. Come again? Yeah. Our praises to God through Jesus gives God the opportunity to enjoy loving us. I have five kids, and I love them, truly, madly, deeply, right? I love them truly, madly, deeply, but you know, it's not always easy to love them. Hope they're not watching. <laughs> it's not always easy to love my five kids, even though I love them all the time. And you know the moments where it's not easy to love my kids? It's when they're being selfish. It's when they're being cruel, when they're not grateful, right? When all they do is complain, when they're being disobedient. In other words, when they're in sin, right? But oh, when my kids are kind, when they're compassionate, when they're sharing, when they're gracious, it is so easy to love them. There is no resistance whatsoever for me loving them. And I get to enjoy loving them because it's so easy. The Bible tells us that God loves us truly, madly, deeply. But do you know what makes it difficult for God to enjoy loving us? It's when Satan is screaming out accusations against us to him where satan is saying some of those vilest most disgusting the most perverted dark things about us and yet they're true and because they're true god cannot completely ignore it 
And as a result, whatever praises that we give to God gets sullied, gets spoiled, gets interfered to where God cannot hear what he wants to hear from us because Satan's accusations are so loud and disgusting and distracting to where God can no longer enjoy this. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus died on the cross as our Savior substitute, so he could finally shut the mouth of Satan so that now all that's left is the beautiful sounds that God desires from us, and he gets to enjoy loving us. Not enjoy being loved by us, but enjoy loving us. That's the key thing. You know, I remember um, going out to dinner once at a fancy Italian restaurant in college, and all of a sudden as I was eating with my friends, this waitress, well, I don't think she was a waitress, she dressed like a waitress, just started coming up to us with a thick $20 bill sticking out of her pocket, started singing this Italian aria, and I literally just didn't know what to do, right? But it was so beautifully sung, and it was an enjoyable experience. And she was well-presented, you know, makeup on, well-dressed, and singing flawlessly, right? And it was enjoyable. But I got to tell you, it compares nothing to when one of my little girls sings a song to me, even with their voices cracking, even with their words all mumbled to where I can't make sense of what they're saying, even with all the confusing, like, words embedded in there or tones to where just Simon Cowell would have a field day with her, right? But why do I enjoy it more? Is it because my child loves me? Sure. But more importantly, it's because I love my child. And as a result, I get to enjoy loving on her as she's singing to me. That is what we do, folks, when we gather together in corporate worship, offering our praises to God. God delights in us singing to him, not because, you know, he just enjoys being loved on by us, which is partly true, but that's simply a reaction. No, the main reason why he enjoys receiving our praises is because he enjoys loving on you. As scripture says, it is better to give than to receive. Where do you think that comes from? That comes from the heart of God. And that's why we set aside a specific time to give God our sole focus, our sole attention, the sole opportunity just for him. Not so that we can say, oh, how I love you, Lord. But to say, God, take this time and enjoy loving on us. Here is your opportunity, Lord. This is your day. This is the Lord's day. Take delight in us as you should. Brothers and sisters, when you understand that, I don't care if you're a rough and tough Roman centurion. I don't care if you're an introverted A-type personality. I don't care if you have the mindset of a robot. When you understand that truth, you will be singing your heart out with genuine, heartfelt praise through Jesus Christ. And so, let's give him our praises on this day for his good, for his enjoyment. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you show us that you are the one who delights in your people. And Father, we understand now that the reason why you saved us isn't simply so that we would love you, but so that you can finally enjoy 
what you intended when you made us into the glorious image of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that we would not take that for granted and that we would prioritize, prioritizing your enjoyment of us by always being faithful and setting aside a time where your people gather together and lift up heartfelt praises to you. For Lord, that is what we desire. You are our Father. We are your children. And so, God, because of the great work that your Son did for us, so that we could sing truly and genuine heartfelt praise, we ask that you would receive that from us till the day that we see you face to face. God, we ask that you will continue to bless your people here at NCF and that there would never be a Lord's Day or any gathering of your people where praise is not always accompanying our fellowship. God, we pray that you will be with us so that you can truly enjoy what your son Jesus has accomplished for us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.